Section 5 of Pamela or Virtue Rewarded. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pamela or Virtue Rewarded by Samuel Richardson. Section 5. Letter 27. Dear Father and Mother, I am glad I desired you not to meet me, and John says you won't for he told you he is sure I shall get a passage well enough, either behind some one of the fellow-servants on horseback, or by Farmer Nichols's means. But as to the chariot he talked to you of, I can't expect that favor to be sure, and I should not care for it, because it would look so much above me. But Farmer Brady, they say, has a chaise with one horse, and we hope to borrow that or hire it rather than fail. Though money runs a little lowish, after what I have laid out, but I don't care to say so here, though I warrant I might have what I would of Mrs. Jervis, or Mr. Jonathan, or Mr. Longman. But then how shall I pay it, you'll say, and besides I don't love to be beholden. But the chief reason I'm glad you don't set out to meet me is the uncertainty, for it seems I must stay another week still, and hope certainly to go Thursday after." for poor Mrs. Jervis will go at the same time, she says, and can't be ready before. Oh, that I was once well with you! Though he is very civil too at present, and not so cross as he was, and yet he is as vexatious another way as you shall hear. For yesterday he had a rich suit of clothes brought home, which they call a birthday suit, for he intends to go to London against next birthday to see the court and our folks will have it, he is to be made a lord. I wish they may make him an honest man, as he was always thought, but I have not found it so, alas, for me. And so, as I was saying, he had these clothes come home, and he tried them on, and before he pulled them off, he sent for me, when nobody else was in the parlor with him. Pamela, said he, you are so neat and so nice in your own dress, alack a day I didn't know I was, that you must be a judge of ours. How are these clothes made? Do they fit me? I am no judge, said I, and please your honor, but I think they look very fine. His waistcoat stood on end with silver lace, and he looked very grand. But what he did last has made me very serious, and I could make him no compliments. Said he, Why don't you wear your usual clothes? though I think everything looks well upon you, for I still continue in my new dress. I said, I have no clothes, sir, I ought to call my own but these, and it is no matter what such an one as I wears. Said he, Why, you look very serious, Pamela, I see you can bear malice. Yes, so I can, sir, said I, according to the occasion. Why, said he, your eyes always look red, I think. Are you not a fool to take my last freedom so much to heart? I am sure you and that fool Mrs. Jervis frightened me by your hideous squalling as much as I could frighten you. That is all we had for it, said I, and if you could be so afraid of your own servants knowing of your attempts upon a poor unworthy creature that is under your protection while I stay, surely your honor ought to be more afraid of God Almighty in whose presence we all stand in every action of our lives, and to whom the greatest as well as the least 
must be accountable, let them think what they list. He took my hand, in a kind of good-humoured mockery, and said, Well urged, my pretty preacher. When my Lincolnshire chaplain dies, I'll put thee on a gown and cassock, and thou'lt make a good figure in his place. I wish, said I, a little vexed at his jeer, your honour's conscience would be your preacher, and then you would need no other chaplain. Well, well, Pamela, said he, no more of this unfashionable jargon. I did not send for you so much for your opinion of my new suit, as to tell you you are welcome to stay, since Mrs. Jervis desires it till she goes. I welcome, said I. I am sure I shall rejoice when I am out of the house. Well, said he, you are an ungrateful baggage, but I am thinking it would be a pity with these fair soft hands and that lovely skin, as he called it and took hold of my hand, that you should return again to hard work, as you must if you go to your father's. And so I would advise her to take a house in London, and let lodgings to us members of Parliament, when we come to town. And such a pretty daughter as you may pass for, will always fill her house, and she'll get a great deal of money. I was sadly vexed at this barbarous joke, but being ready to cry before, the tears gushed out, and, endeavouring to get my hand from him, but in vain, I said, I can expect no better. Your behaviour, sir, to me, has been just of a piece with these words. Nay, I will say it, though you were to be ever so angry. I angry, Pamela? No, no, said he. I have overcome all that, and as you are to go away, I look upon you now as Mrs. Jervis's guest while you both stay, and not as my servant, and so you may say what you will. But I'll tell you, Pamela, why you need not take this matter in such high disdain. You have a very pretty romantic turn for virtue and all that, and I don't suppose but you'll hold it still, and nobody will be able to prevail upon you. But, my child, sneeringly he spoke it, do but consider what a fine opportunity you will then have for a tale every day to good mother Jervis, and what subjects for letter-writing to your father and mother, and what pretty preachments you may hold forth to the young gentleman. Adds my heart, I think it would be the best thing you and she could do. You do well, sir, said I, to even your wit to such a poor maiden as me. But permit me to say that if you was not rich and great, and I poor and little, you would not insult me thus. Let me ask you, sir, if you think this becomes your fine clothes and a master's station. Why so serious, my pretty Pamela, said he, why so grave, and would kiss me, but my heart was full, and I said, Let me alone, I will tell you, if you was a king, and insulted me as you have done, that you have forgotten to act like a gentleman, and I won't stay to be used thus, I will go to the next farmer's, and there wait for Mrs. Jervis, if she must go. And I'd have you know, sir, that I can stoop to the ordinariest work of your scullions, for all these nasty soft hands, sooner than bear such ungentlemanly imputations. I sent for you, said he, in high good humour, but it is impossible to hold it with such an impertinent. However, I'll keep my temper. But while I see you here, pray don't put on those dismal grave looks. Why, girl, you should forbear them, if it were but for your pride's sake. 
for the family will think you are grieving to leave the house. Then, sir, said I, I will try to convince them of the contrary, as well as your honor, for I will endeavor to be more cheerful while I stay for that very reason. Well, replied he, I will set this down by itself as the first time that ever what I had advised had any weight with you. And I will add, said I, as the first advice you have given me of late that was fit to be followed. I wish, said he, I am almost ashamed to write it, impudent gentleman as he is, I wish I had thee as quick another way, as thou art in thy repartees. And he laughed, and I snatched my hand from him, and I tripped away as fast as I could. Ah, thought I, married? I am sure it is time you were married, or, at this rate, no honest maiden ought to live with you. Why, dear father and mother, to be sure he grows quite a rake. How easy it is to go from bad to worse when once people give way to vice. How would my poor lady, had she lived, have grieved to see it? But maybe he would have been better then. Though it seems he told Mrs. Jervis, he had an eye upon me in his mother's lifetime, and he intended to let me know as much by the by he told her. Here is shamelessness for you. Sure the world must be near at an end, for all the gentlemen about are as bad as he almost, as far as I can hear. And see the fruits of such bad examples. There's Squire Martin in the grove, has had three lyings in, it seems, in his house, in three months past, one by himself, and one by his coachman, and one by his woodman, and yet he has turned none of them away. Indeed, how can he, when they but follow his own vile example? There is he, and two or three more such as he, within ten miles of us, who keep company and hunt with our fine master truly, and I suppose he is never the better for their examples. But heaven bless me, say I, and send me out of this wicked house. But, dear father and mother, what sort of creatures must the womenkind be, do you think, to give way to such wickedness? Why, this it is that makes every one be thought of alike. And, alack a day, what a world we live in, for it is grown more a wonder that the men are resisted than that the women comply. This, I suppose, makes me such a sauce-box and bold-faced and a creature, and all because I won't be a sauce-box and bold-face indeed. But I am sorry for these things. One don't know what arts and stratagems men may devise to gain their vile ends, and so I will think as well as I can of these poor undone creatures and pity them. For you see, by my sad story and narrow escapes, what hardships poor maidens go through, whose lot it is to go out to service, especially to houses where there is not the fear of God, and good rule kept by the heads of the family. You see, I am quite grown grave and serious. Indeed, it becomes the present condition of your dutiful daughter. Letter 28 Dear Father and Mother, John says you wept when you read my last letter that he carried. I am sorry you let him see that, for they all mistrust already how matters are, and it is no credit that I have been attempted, though it is that I have resisted. Yet I am sorry they have cause to think so evil of my master from any of us. Mrs. Jervis has made up her accounts with Mr. Longman, and will stay in her place. I am glad of it for her own sake, and for my master's 
for she has a good master of him. So indeed all have, but poor me, and he has a good housekeeper in her. Mr. Longman, it seems, took upon him to talk to my master how faithful and careful of his interests she was, and how exact in her accounts, and he told him there was no comparison between her accounts and Mrs. Jukes's at the Lincolnshire estate. He said so many fine things, it seems, of Mrs. Jervis, that my master sent for her in Mr. Longman's presence, and said Pamela might come along with her, I suppose to mortify me, that I must go while she has to stay. But as, when I go away, I am not to go with her, nor was she to go with me. So I did not matter it much, only it would have been creditable to such a poor girl that the housekeeper would bear me company if I went. Said he to her, Well, Mrs. Jervis, Longman says you have made up your accounts with him with your usual fidelity and exactness. I had a good mind to make you an offer of continuing with me, if you can be a little sorry for your hasty words, which indeed were not so respectful as I have deserved at your hands. She seemed at a sad loss what to say, because Mr. Longman was there, and she could not speak of the occasion of those words, which was me. Indeed, said Mr. Longman, I must needs say before your face, that since I have known my master's family, I have never found such good management in it, nor so much love and harmony neither. I wish the Lincolnshire estate was as well served. No more of that, said my master, but Mrs. Jervis may stay if she will. And here, Mrs. Jervis, pray accept of this, which at the close of every year's accounts I will present you with, besides your salary, as long as I find your care so useful and agreeable. And he gave her five guineas. She made him a low curtsy, and thanking him, looked to me, as if she would have spoken to me. He took her meaning, I believe, for he said, Indeed, I love to encourage merit and obligingness, long man, but I can never be equally kind to those who don't deserve it at my hands, as to those who do. And then he looked full on me. Long man, continued he, I said that girl might come in with Mrs. Jervis, because they love to be always together. For Mrs. Jervis is very good to her, and loves her as well as if she was her daughter. But else, Mr. Longman interrupting him said, Good to Mrs. Pamela. I, sir, and so she is, to be sure. But everybody must be good to her, for... He was going on, but my master said, No more, no more, Mr. Longman. I see old men are taken with pretty young girls as well as other folks and fair looks hide many a fault, where a person has the art to behave obligingly. Why, and please your honour, said Mr. Longman, everybody, and was going on, I believe, to say something more in my praise, but he interrupted him and said, Not a word more of this Pamela. I can't let her stay, I'll assure you, not only for her own freedom of speech, but her letter-writing of all the secrets of my family. Aye, said the good old man, I am sorry for that too. But, sir, no more, I say, said my master, for my reputation is so well known, mighty fine, thought I, that I care not what anybody writes or says of me, but to tell you the truth, not that it need go further, I think of changing my condition soon, and you know, young ladies of birth and fortune will choose their own servants, and that's my chief reason why Pamela can't stay. 
as for the rest said he the girl is a good sort of body take her altogether though i must needs say a little pert since my mother's death in her answers and gives me two words for one which i can't bear nor is there reason i should you know longman no to be sure sir said he but tis strange methinks she should be so mild and meek to every one of us in the house and forget herself so where she should show most respect very true mr longman said he but so it is i'll assure you and it was from her pertness that mrs jervis and i had the words and i should mind it the less but that the girl there she stands i say it to her face has wit and sense above her years and knows better i was in great pain to say something but yet i knew not what before mr longman and mrs jervis looked at me and walked to the window to hide her concern for me at last i said it is for you sir to say what you please and for me only to say god bless your honour poor mr longman faltered in his speech and was ready to cry said my insulting master to me why prithee pamela now show thyself as thou art before longman canst not give him a specimen of that pertness which thou hast exercised upon me sometimes did he not my dear father and mother deserve all the truth to be told yet i overcame myself so far as to say well your honour may play upon a poor girl that you know can answer you but dare not why prithee now insinuator said he say the worst you can before longman and mrs jervis i challenge the utmost of thy impertinence and as thou art going away and have the love of everybody i would be a little justified to my family that you have no reason to complain of hardships from me as i have pert saucy answers from you besides exposing me by your letters surely sir said i i am of no consequence equal to this in your honour's family that such a great gentleman as you should need justify yourself about me i am glad mrs jervis stays with your honour and i know i have not deserved to stay and more than that i don't desire to stay ads bobbers said mr longman and ran to me don't say so don't say so dear miss pamela we all love you dearly and pray down of your knees and ask his honour pardon and we will all become pleaders in a body and i and mrs jervis too at the head of it to beg his honour's pardon and to continue you at least till his honour marries no mr longman said i i cannot ask nor will i stay if i might all i desire is to return to my poor father and mother and though i love you all i won't stay oh well a day well a day said the good old man i did not expect this when i had got matters thus far and had made all up for mrs jervis i was in hopes to have got a double holiday of joy for all the family in your pardon too well said my master this is a little specimen of what i told you long man you see there is a spirit you did not expect mrs jervis told me after that she could stay no longer to hear me so hardly used and must have spoken had she stayed what would never have been forgiven her so she went out i looked after her to go too but my master said come pamela give another specimen i desire you to longman i am sure you must if you will but speak well sir said i 
since it seems your greatness wants to be justified by my lowness, and I have no desire you should suffer in the sight of your family, I will say on my bended knees, and so I kneel down, that I have been a very faulty and a very ungrateful creature to the best of masters. I have been very perverse and saucy, and have deserved nothing at your hands but to be turned out of your family with shame and disgrace. I therefore have nothing to say for myself, but that I am not worthy to stay, and so cannot wish to stay, and will not stay. And so God Almighty bless you, and Mr. Longman, and good Mrs. Jervis, and every living soul of the family, and I will pray for you as long as I live. And so I rose up, and was forced to lean upon my master's elbow-chair, or I should have sunk down. The poor old man wept more than I, and said, Ads bobbers, was ever the like heard, tis too much, too much, I can't bear it. As I hope to live, I am quite melted. Dear sir, forgive her. The poor thing prays for you. She prays for us all. She owns her fault, yet won't be forgiven. I profess I know not what to make of it. My master himself, hardened wretch as he was, seemed a little moved, and took his handkerchief out of his pocket, and walked to the window. What sort of a day is it? said he. And then, getting a little more hard-heartedness, he said, Well, you may be gone from my presence, thou strange medley of inconsistence, but thou shan't stay after your time in the house. Nay, pray, sir, pray, sir, said the old man, relent a little, adds hardikins, you young gentlemen are made of iron and steel, I think. I'm sure, said he, my heart's turned into butter and is running away at my eyes. I never felt the like before, said my master with an imperious tone. Get out of my presence, hussy. I can't bear you in my sight. Sir, said I, I'm going as fast as I can. But indeed, my dear father and mother, my head was so giddy, and my limbs trembled so, that I was forced to go holding by the wainscot all the way with both my hands, and thought I should not have got to the door but when I did, as I hoped this would be my last interview with this terrible hard-hearted master, I turned about and made a low curtsy and said, God bless you, sir, God bless you, Mr. Longman, and I went into the lobby leading to the great hall and dropped into the first chair, for I could get no farther a good while. I leave all these things to your reflection, my dear parents, but I can write no more. My poor heart's almost broken. Indeed it is. Oh, when shall I get away? Send me, good God, in safety, once more to my poor father's peaceful cot, and there the worst that can happen will be joy and perfection to what I now bear. Oh, pity, your distressed daughter. Letter 29 My dear father and mother, I must ride on, though I shall come so soon, for now I have hardly anything else to do. I have finished all that lay upon me, and only wait the good time of setting out. Mrs. Jervis said I must be low in pocket for what I had laid out, and so would have presented me with two guineas of her five. But I could not take them of her, because, poor gentlewoman, she pays old debts for her children, that were extravagant, and wants them herself. This, though, was very good in her. I am sorry I shall have but little to bring with me, but I know you won't, you are so good, and I will work the harder when I come home, if I can get a little plain work, or anything to do. 
but all your neighborhood is so poor that I fear I shall want work, except maybe Dame Mumford can help me to something from any good family she is acquainted with. Here, what a sad thing it is! I have been brought up wrong as matters stand. For, you know, my good lady, now in heaven, loved singing and dancing, and, as she would have it, I had a voice, she made me learn both. And often and often has she made me sing her an innocent song, and a good psalm, too, and dance before her. And I must learn to flower and draw, too, and to work fine work with my needle. Why, all this, too, I have got pretty tolerably at my finger's end, as they say. And she used to praise me, and was a good judge of such matters. Well, now, what is all this to the purpose, as things have turned out? Why, no more or less, but that I am like the grasshopper in the fable, which I have read of in my lady's book as follows. Footnote. See the Aesop's fables which have lately been selected and reformed from those of Sir R. Lestrange and the most eminent mythologists. End footnote. As the ants were airing their provisions one winter, a hungry grasshopper, as suppose it was poor I, begged a charity of them. They told him that he should have wrought in summer if he would not have wanted in winter. Well, says the grasshopper, but I was not idle neither for I sung out the whole season. Nay, then, said they, you'll even do well to make a merry year of it, and dance in winter to the time you sung in summer. So I shall make a fine figure with my singing and my dancing, when I come home to you. Nay, I shall be unfit even for a May-day holiday time, for these minuets, brigadoons, and French dances, that I have been practicing, will make me but ill company for my milkmaid companions that are to be. To be sure I had better, as things stand, have learned to wash and scour, and brew and bake, and such like. But I hope, if I can't get work, and can meet with a place, to learn these soon, if anybody will have the goodness to bear with me till I am able. For, notwithstanding what my master says, I hope I have an humble and teachable mind, and, next to God's grace, that's all my comfort, for I shall think nothing too mean that is honest. It may be a little hard at first, but woe to my proud heart if I find it so on trial, for I will make it bend to its condition or break it. I have read of a good bishop that was to be burnt for his religion, and he tried how he could bear it by putting his fingers into the lighted candle. So I, t'other day, tried, when Rachel's back was turned, if I could not scour a pewter plate she had begun. I see I could do it by degrees. It only blistered my hand in two places. All the matter is, if I could get plain work enough, I need not spoil my fingers. But if I can't, I hope to make my hands as red as a blood pudding, and as hard as a beechen trencher, to accommodate them to my condition. But I must break off, here's somebody coming." "'Tis only our Hannah with a message from Mrs. Jervis. "'But hold, here's somebody else. "'Well, it is only Rachel. "'I am as much frightened as were the city mouse and the country mouse "'in the same book of fables at everything that stirs. "'Oh, I have a power of these things to entertain you with "'in winter evenings when I come home. "'If I can but get work with a little time for reading, "'I hope we shall be very happy over our peat fires.' What made me hint to you that I should bring but little with me is this. 
you must know I did intend to do as I have this afternoon, and that is, I took all my clothes and all my linen, and I divided them into three parcels, as I had before told Mrs. Jervis I intended to do. And I said, It is now Monday, Mrs. Jervis, and I am to go away on Thursday morning betimes. So, though I know you don't doubt my honesty, I beg you will look over my poor matters, and let every one have what belongs to them. For, said I, you know I am resolved to take with me only what I can properly call my own. Said she, I did not know her drift then, to be sure she meant well, but I did not thank her for it when I did know it. Let your things be brought down in the green room, and I will do anything you will have me do. With all my heart, said I, green room or anywhere, but I think you might step up and see em as they lie. However, I fetched em down and laid them in three parcels as before, and, when I had done, I went down to call her up to look at them. Now it seems she had prepared my master for this scene unknown to me, and in this green room was a closet with a sash door and a curtain before it, for there she puts her sweetmeats and such things, and she did it, it seems, to turn his heart, as knowing what I intended, I suppose that he should make me take the things, for if he had, I should have made money of them to help us when we got together, for, to be sure, I could never have appeared in them. Well, as I was saying, he had got, unknown to me, into this closet, I suppose while I went to call Mrs. Jervis, and since she owned to me it was at his desire when she told him something of what I intended, or else would not have done it, though I have reason, I am sure, to remember the last closet work. So I said, when she came up, Here, Mrs. Jervis, is the first parcel. I will spread it all abroad. These are the things my good lady gave me. In the first place, said I, and so I went on describing the clothes and linen my lady had given me, mingling blessings as I proceeded for her goodness to me. And when I had turned over that parcel, I said, Well, so much for the first parcel, Mrs. Jervis. That was my lady's gifts. Now I come to the presence of my dear virtuous master. Hey, you no closet for that, Mrs. Jervis. She laughed and said, I never saw such a comical girl in my life, but go on. I will, Mrs. Jervis, said I, as soon as I have opened the bundle, for I was as brisk and as pert as could be, little thinking who heard me. Now here, Mrs. Jervis, said I, are my ever-worthy master's presents, and then I particularized all those in the second bundle. After which I turned to my own and said, Now, Mrs. Jervis, comes poor Pamela's bundle, and a little one it is to the others. First, here is a calico nightgown that I used to wear a-mornings. T'will be rather too good for me when I get home, but I must have something. Then there is a quilted calamanco coat, and a pair of stockings I bought of the peddler, and my straw hat with blue strings, and a remnant of Scott's cloth, which will make two shirts and two shifts, the same I have on, for my poor father and mother. And here are four other shifts, one the fellow to that I have on, another pretty good one, and the other two old fine ones, that will serve me to turn and wind with at home, for they are not worth leaving behind me. And here are two pairs of shoes, I have taken the lace off which I will burn, and maybe will fetch me some little matter at a pinch, with an old silver buckle or two. What do you laugh for, Mrs. Jervis? said I. 
Why, you are like an April day, you cry and laugh in a breath. Well, let me see. I, here is a cotton handkerchief I bought of the peddler. There should be another somewhere. Oh, here it is. And here, too, are my new knit mittens. And this is my new flannel coat, the fellow to that I have on. And in this parcel, pinned together, are several pieces of printed calico, remnants of silks, and such like, that, if good luck should happen, and I should get work, would serve for robins and facings and such like uses. And here, too, are a pair of pockets. They are too fine for me, but I have no worse. Bless me, said I. I did not think I had so many good things. Well, Mrs. Jervis, said I, you have seen all my store, and I will now sit down and tell you a piece of my mind. Be brief, then, said she, my good girl, for she was afraid, she said afterwards, that I would say too much. Why, then, the case is this. I am to enter upon a point of equity and conscience, Mrs. Jervis, and I must beg, if you love me, you'd let me have my own way. Those things there of my lady's I can have no claim to so as to take them away, for she gave them me, supposing I was to wear them in her service, and to do credit to her bountiful heart. But, since I am to be turned away, you know, I cannot wear them at my poor father's, for I should bring all the little village upon my back, and so I resolve not to have them. Then, Mrs. Jervis, said I, I have far less right to these of my worthy master's, for you see what was his intention in giving them to me. So they were to be the price of my shame, and if I could make use of them, I should think I should never prosper with them. And besides, you know, Mrs. Jervis, if I could not do the good gentleman's work, why should I take his wages? So, in conscience, in honor, in everything, I have nothing to say to thee, thou second wicked bundle. But, said I, come to my arms, my dear third parcel, the companion of my poverty, and the witness of my honesty, and may I never deserve the least rag that is contained in thee, when I forfeit a title to that innocence that I hope will ever be the pride of my life, and then I am sure it will be my highest comfort at my death, when all the riches and pomps of the world will be worse than the vilest rags that can be worn by beggars. And so I hugged my third bundle. But, said I, Mrs. Jervis, and she wept to hear me, one thing more I have to trouble you with, and that's all. There are four guineas, you know, that came out of my good lady's pocket when she died. That was some silver my master gave me. Now these same four guineas I sent to my poor father and mother, and they have broken them, but would take them up if I could, and if you think it should be so, it shall. But pray tell me honestly your mind, as to the three years before my lady's death, do you think, as I had no wages, I may be supposed to be quits? By quits I cannot mean that my poor services should be equal to my lady's goodness, for that's impossible. But as all her learning and education of me, as matters have turned, will be of little service to me now, for it had been better for me to have been brought up to hard labor, to be sure. For that I must turn to at last, if I can't get a place. And you know, in places too, one is subject to such temptations as are dreadful to think of. So, I say, by quits I only mean, as I return all the good things she gave me, whether I may not set my little services against my keeping. Because, as I said, my learning is not now in the question, 
and I am sure my dear good lady would have thought so had she lived, but that too is now out of the question. Well then, if so, I would ask, whether, in above this year that I have lived with my master, as I am resolved to leave all his gifts behind me, I may not have earned, besides my keeping, these four guineas, and these poor clothes here upon my back and in my third bundle. Now tell me your mind freely, without favor or affection. Alas, my dear girl, says she, you make me unable to speak to you at all. To be sure it will be the highest affront that can be offered for you to leave any of these things behind you, and you must take all your bundles with you, or my master will never forgive you. Well, well, Mrs. Jervis, said I, I don't care. I have been too much used to be snubbed and hardly treated by my master of late. I have done him no harm, and I shall always pray for him and wish him happy. But I don't deserve these things. I know I don't. Then I can't wear them if I should take them, so they can be of no use to me. And I trust I shall not want the poor pittance. That is all I desire to keep life and soul together. Bread and water I can live upon, Mrs. Jervis, with content. Water I shall get anywhere, and if I can't get me bread, I will live like a bird in winter upon hips and haws, and at other times upon pig-nuts and potatoes, or turnips, or anything. So what occasion have I for these things? But all I ask is about these four guineas, and if you think I need not return them, that is all I want to know. To be sure, my dear, you need not said she. You have well earned them by that waistcoat only. No, I think not so in that only, but in the linen and other things, do you think I have? Yes, yes, said she, and more. And my keeping allowed for, I mean, said I, and these poor clothes on my back besides? Remember that, Mrs. Jervis. Yes, my dear odd one, no doubt you have. Well, then, said I, I am as happy as a princess. I am quite as rich as I wish to be. And once more, my dear third bundle, I will hug thee to my bosom. And I beg you'll say nothing of all this, till I am gone, that my master mayn't be so angry, but that I may go in peace. For my heart, without other matters, will be ready to break to part with you all. Now, Mrs. Jervis, said I, as to one matter more, and that is my master's last usage of me before Mr. Longman. Said she, Prithee, dear Pamela, step up to my chamber, and fetch me a paper I left on my table. I have something to show you in it. I will, said I, and stepped down. But it was only a fetch, to take the orders of my master I found. It seems he said, he thought two or three times to have burst out upon me, but he could not stand it, and wished I might not know he was there. But I tripped up again so nimbly, for there was no paper, that I just saw his back, as if coming out of that green room, and going into the next to it, the first door that was open. I whipped in and shut the door and bolted it. Oh, Mrs. Jervis, said I, what have you done by me? I see I can't confide in anybody. I am beset on all hands. Wretched, wretched Pamela, where shalt thou expect a friend if Mrs. Jervis joins to betray thee thus? She made so many protestations, telling me all, and that he owned I had made him wipe his eyes two or three times, and said she hoped it would have a good effect, 
and remembered me that I had said nothing but what would rather move compassion than resentment, that I forgave her. But oh, that I was safe from this house, for never poor creature sure was so flustered as I have been so many months together. I am called down from this most tedious scribble. I wonder what will next befall, your dutiful daughter. Mrs. Jervis says she is sure I shall have the chariot to carry me home to you. Though this will look too great for me, yet it will show as if I was not turned away quite in disgrace. The travelling chariot is come from Lincolnshire, and I fancy I shall go in that, for the other is quite grand. End of section 5